0: So we're here to talk about genius and VCs tonight. So why don't we start off a little bit and talk about why it is that you, who you are, what led you down the path to wanting to write this book, and I think you can talk a little bit about why you wrote your
1: first book too, Disruptor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks everybody for coming here, and, and thanks a lot for Ben and Kit for having me tonight. Um, as a quick recap in my background, and I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions and keep this as candid as possible and also stay in touch with you guys after. Uh, started off my career at JP Morgan, uh, absolutely hated it. Um, ended up leaving trying to find something that would excite me and find work that was more interesting. But everywhere I was reading, it was all about startups uh, and their founders talking about their successes after four years of starting their company. Um <laughs> And that was a little frustrating for someone leaving a corporate job and trying to actually build out something on my own. Uh, so what I set out to do was to interview founders as they were building and as they were starting their journey. So it was the first six months. I ended up getting lucky in speaking to the founders of now companies like Pinterest and Foursquare, Betterment, LearnVest, uh, Douala. Am host I, am of I correct
0: that one. Andrew Yang was one of the founders Andrew, you spoke yes. to? Andrew Presidential Yang candidate
1: was, Andrew Yang yes. now. He was not a presidential candidate then. Um, He was actually starting Venture for America at that point. Uh, Super interesting to hear kind of the candid stories of partners leaving their boyfriend or girlfriend, of bankruptcy, of credit card debt, of partner feuding and all that stuff and put out in my first book. Um, Ended up joining Charity Water for about three years, did a book tour for the first one. But while I was in the book tour, all anybody wanted to talk about was venture capitalists. Um, and where they could get their money from and it seemed like a black hole and people didn't really understand how those operated They were frustrated when VCs would say no. They're like, why won't they just back this game-changing idea? Um, ended up launching my own company and felt the same frustrations when I went out to raise venture funding um, Was speaking to a bunch of people who just didn't get it Uh and clearly, in the end, I didn't get it either, because that company failed. Uh, but it was still exciting, and it was a really interesting time. And then switched over and sold out, and have been in venture for the last four years. The premise of this book was, uh, A, partly because of the frustration that I had seen when I was trying to raise my own capital, um, and from the questions that I had uh, and heard from people while writing my uh, while on the book tour for the first one. Um, What I set out to do was to understand there's been 50 different VCs uh, who have backed a lot of the biggest companies, Uber, Airbnb, Pinterest, Tesla, SpaceX. Were they just lucky? And do they just tweet and blog and talk a big game, or do they actually know what they're Doing, um, And is there any strategy or, or sense of thesis or focus when they go out to make these investments? Or is it really just an old boys club in San Francisco that pass around the top companies and only a few have access to those and they get their investments that way? So I wanted to really break through that to understand where was the, the BS and where was the real and what goes beyond a VC who's always tweeting. Um, and really got to see some of the insights firsthand uh, from many of these venture investors who first backed these companies to understand what patterns they had seen by serving on the boards of many of these big companies, what patterns have they seen by working with founders who r- took a rocket ship up and then also failed, and just sharing a lot of those anecdotes, but also demystifying VC as it stands today. Uh, what I did notice was that many of these VCs were part of the old boys club, and they I know it's a common topic to talk about the gender, but they did represent one gender, despite kind of trying to create a diverse pool of different VCs to interview. They represented one geography. They represented one socioeconomic class. They represented one kind of frame of thought. Um, So what I did with the back half of the book, the last 10 chapters are written by junior VCs who are emerging. They're more diverse backgrounds. Some come from different states and cities and genders. And um ethnicity so it creates a little bit more diverse pool of thought. Um, that's the future of genius, as I wrote about in the book. Um, and they've gone into individual sectors and verticals. So some healthcare, some consumer, some blockchain. Uh, and it's been it's been really exciting, so I'm happy to share and talk more about that.
0: So um, you referenced at the beginning of the book um, a Harvard Business Review article that describes VCs as trail-wise sidekicks to entrepreneurs, and I thought that was interesting because it made me think about how your two books really feel like flip sides of a coin. Um, do you do you agree with that idea of thinking about VCs as trail-wise sidekicks?
1: Yeah, I mean, as a founder, I was pretty, I had a lot of animosity towards VCs. I just really believed that they were just checkbooks, um, and i believe that once they write me the check, I'd have no use for this person ever again. Um, And I still think a lot of founders see that, and I still think there's a lot of VCs that also just believe in that. Once we write the check, that's all we want to do, and come back to us five years from now when you're selling your company. Um, I do think there is a value of having a venture capitalist uh, that has backed and seen the same type of company play out seven times, because they've seen some patterns. So a trail-wise sidekick, I think just the way founders are beaten up over and over again by failure after failure, and then maybe the fourth company succeeds, I think it's the same thing with VCs. is they, they have some skin in the game, but the only skin in the game they have is money. But by the fourth time around, they'll now know a bit more about what were the, uh, kind of the, the failures that those founders faced when they were going to start those similar types of businesses. So I think there is something to be say about the trail-wise aspect of it, is that if they are the right type of investor and they are learning from some of those experiences where they failed, uh, they might be that much of a value add investor on the side when they are back in the founder for the fourth or fifth time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounded interesting to me because a number of your contributors. I mean, there are thirty very uh, prominent and preeminent VCs that contributed to your book. Many of them have actually spoken here. We do a monthly series for our members um, that's called Inside the Investment Committee, where one member who is a founder gets to basically pitch in front of an audience of people to a VC committee um, what do, do their actual startup pitch, and then the committee kind of gives. It's like a normal startup meeting, and then the founder quote-unquote leaves the room and the VC actually talks shit about like why they would or usually wouldn't invest in a thing but one of the things that we hear over and over again is actually a ratification of that point that um they have skin in the game that they you know they're not looking to spend money and then walk away and 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 want to be kind of in it to the business and a lot of the things that they seem to evaluate are actually whether or not they can develop a relationship with this person to, to be a sidekick in that way
1: I think, and I, I mean, I think that's actually true. It's like, I think I made the same mistake, and I think entrepreneurs make the same mistake many times, where they see. VCs more as bankers, and they don't see them as entrepreneurs themselves. So I wrote two chapters about VCs as entrepreneurs and what the process actually looks like of them raising a fund, and how many times they're beaten over the head before they actually get that capital. So many entrepreneurs, if you look at it from like a three-stage approach, entrepreneurs, there's still enough information about VCs out there. You can see what's on their website, what, website, what types of companies they've backed, who are these venture capitalists, VCs can't see that. They have to go and raise a fund from LPs, and you don't really know who they are or why they're investing in these venture funds, and they go out and do it. So one of my favorite anecdotes from the book is about um, a guy named Rick Heitzman. Uh, He founded First Smart Capital, which is a pretty large venture fund here in New York. He was one of the early stage investors in Pinterest. Um, And he talks about being pretty successful late in his career and then deciding after starting a couple of companies, and then deciding to start a venture fund, and he would go and wait in lobbies of large banks, kind of similar if, if people have seen the movie The Big Short, where they go and wait in the lobby of a, of a, and an analyst comes down and says, We'll take you now, and then they cancel the meeting, and he just keeps getting beaten up again and again trying to raise his capital. It took him a couple of years to raise that first fund. And it's not the skin in the game, is that if they don't do well with that within three years, it's pretty obvious, um, and they'll never be able to do that again. Uh, So it's the same thing that many of these VCs are founders I'm friends with kind of several VCs who have started their first five million dollar fund or first two million dollar fund or ten million And to see them working 120 hour weeks just to make the name for themselves and to win The deals with some of the best entrepreneurs in this room is extremely competitive and extremely hard Um, so I think that level of empathy on both sides is sometimes hard to come by and
0: and So how did you choose the contributors that you have in the book? It's 30 people. And one thing I'll I'll note, too, because you mentioned the old boys club of Silicon Valley, but it looks to me that a huge percentage of the 30 are New York-based VCs. So talk about both of those things a little bit, how you chose them and and why they're New York and whether or not that makes a difference versus the San
1: Francisco-based. Sure. Yeah. So I did... um You're right. A big percentage of them are New Yorkers. Um, There are several kind of Bay Area-based VCs as well. And then there's some that are more flyover country VCs as well that have started their own funds, so Rise of the Rest. Which
0: doesn't actually mean based in a flyover place. Yeah,
1: exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, Cultivation Capital and a couple of those other funds. Um, I did my best to try to find the most diverse group, and that was one of the focus areas of like diverse both in gender and in ethnicity, but also to focus, just to get, I mean, the book would be really boring if every single person was saying the same exact thing. Then I could write a 10-page book, and it would be over with. Um, So I was really trying to find diversity in thought. So that meant regionally, uh, ethnicity, gender, what areas they focus on, what sectors they invest in, um, what stage they invest in, how long they've been doing this, Uh, that was sort of how I started it Um, and then there were several VCs that just didn't make it into the book after the conversations because I was also trying to find the most interesting anecdotes that I can share in the book that would help entrepreneurs understand why venture capitalists make the decisions that they do sometimes. The second half of the book is also based off of this idea of VC as entrepreneurs. So those are people that have just raised their first fund. Um, Those are people that are actually investing in venture funds to share some insights from the other side. Um, And then the last section is junior folks that are both in New York, San San Francisco primarily, um, who are junior partners at venture funds, but will bring a new perspective in. Because I don't think they're as uh, beaten up on the venture side because they've seen so many failed investments. They're still a little more idealistic. They've been spending four or five years on a specific sector. So media, for example, yeah. um, an investor had started a media company, has only been doing media investments for five years, and now wrote the chapter on it. Yeah. Um, so that's how I did it
0: is. So, uh, and who, like, why did you write this book? Who did you write it for? Who, who do you th- expect would want to read this book and why?
1: I think, I mean, I when I was uh, raising my venture round, I wanted a, a better sense of, before I was going into a venture meeting, exactly how our decisions are made. Um, how are VCs thinking about the theses before they go and approach it? I think what I realized, so I was starting a company called Unfold, um, and it was basically a Spotify for long form content. And I was one of maybe 20 founders starting the same exact company at the same time. And now on the VC side, I've seen about 50 of those companies that have come back in. Um, Prior to me going out, about five of those companies had failed as well from different approaches. So Circa was one of the bigger ones. Uh, Flipboard was a great success, but it's also kind of been petered out. Um, there's a handful of other ones that have tried something similar to make long-form content more accessible, and they've struggled. And VCs understand this because they've seen 50 of those companies, and they've come at it from different perspectives. It's a jigsaw puzzle idea, which many of them talk about. So. I was going into it blind, I was singularly focused on my startup alone, and I wasn't understanding the entire thesis and the landscape that VCs approach their portfolio theory, their investments from, and a book like this would have helped me do that. So it's written primarily for entrepreneurs, but it's also written for VCs who are junior in their career, who are, uh, this isn't a mentorship business, um, who are trying to learn from the VCs who have been doing this for 50 years, um, and to better understand exactly how they've made the decisions and backed those companies. One of the hardest things that we learn is that we'll make one investment a year, or maybe even one investment every three years. Um, and after 20 years, you kind of figure out whether you're good at this job or not. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, Andy Weissman, there was a good quote that you put in there from Union Square Ventures, I think that there is an incredibly healthy and underappreciated amount of luck that comes into what we do. There's some skill, but
1: there's an enormous amount of luck. There's a Yeah, I mean, it, and that's one of the scariest parts about this job is that it really starts to feel like, what can you do? to de risk that luck and take it away? Because you're waiting for the right deal to fall into your lap. So I'm also hoping, besides promoting my book tonight, that maybe there's a founder in here that will get attracted to me and send me an email tomorrow. Um, Uh,
0: If there are founders out there, let us know, and we are happy to give you Canil's email address.
1: So I I think that's the luck aspect of it. Are you in the right place at the right time? Have you built up enough of a credibility where founders want to work with you as well? Um, And... But the luck aspect is also companies just the building side of it. So founders in this room, they know that you could be staring at death <laughs> of your company, and then all of a sudden something will change, yeah. um, or you'll get the right connection. So the luck aspect of it is real. I think the way we de-risk it is by some of the other experiences that we've had. So me building my own company was one of those pieces. I think uh, Hearst offering something else is one of those other ways we do risk luck. I think some of the other investors in the book, Andy Weissman or Fred Wilson or some of the other folks, They've de-risked it by doing this for 40 years. So their, their element of luck is a lot lower. Um, I think they're very strategic in the f- companies they picked.
0: Um, so let's talk about Genius, which is the title of the book. And a, a sec- the, I think third section of the book is kind of dedicated to talking about this. So talk about why Genius is a, a sp- an important concern to you. And explain kind of your definition of it as you kind of map it out in the book
1: yeah I think what I was looking for was um, did VCS I mean I could have spoken with founders about this but did VCS who have made this the sole purpose of their career over 40 years 20 years um, do they believe that founders are genetically disposed to actually starting really good companies like is there something just uh, special about Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or or Sarah Blakely or the other founders that have done really well or is it something that, is formed over time, and I think what I learned with a lot of the VCs, and genius is that word that I stuck with, um, because I think it it represents something where people believe that's just something you're born with, that you're either a genius or you're not. Um, And what I learned kind of through a lot of these experiences, the way many of them, the way I've done it in the book is that I took two of the larger VCs and asked them to define genius and how they believe entrepreneurial genius exists. Um, And some of the qualities that they listed out were this uh, ability to accept risk and ambiguity and actually looking for it and looking for more uncertainty and that's where they thrive um, they believed it was a conviction in themselves that almost bordered on arrogance uh, they believe that you really needed a good ability to tell a story and craft it because I and I see this every single day because there could be really good companies but if they just can't tell the story about why that company needs to exist it, it completely kills it um, So these are some of the qualities that they started to sum up into genius, and then I used that as a rubric for other VCs to either argue with, or dispute, or debate against what terms they saw. And what was interesting is is that many of them, uh, I think it was the the older, uh, I'm gonna be careful here, but the older males who were saying, we wanna see people who are arrogant and bordering on overconfidence, and it was the more emerging VCs who were a little more humble, who were saying, "No, that's wrong." I think that exuberance and that overconfidence led to scandals at Zenefits. It led to scandals. At Successful fairness.
0: sociopaths. Yes, yeah, yeah.
1: exactly, exactly. Um, and I think the ones that just can't understand when they just have no self-awareness or self-control, and they take this money and they do things that are kind of bordering on fraud. Um, so that became one of the big debate points in the book, is that we don't want to back overconfident assholes anymore, um, like the ones that you see on YouTube videos who have made a big name for themselves by just saying, kind of spewing off garbage, uh, just to get attention to themselves. Um, and it, it seemed a little bit more strategic now. With some of the younger junior, more diverse species who are saying, no, we got to be a little more contained and controlled with how it works. Yeah,
0: playing. and I like one of the points of the true hammer, which is this idea that somehow tenacity is a part of genius, really. That it, because it, and, and, and I think you use a term, I forget what it is, it's not tenacity, but that kind of combine. it's a sort of combination of tenacity and self-belief, I guess, that is, it, to, you know, from some of the sites that you reference, um, really crucial to what the understanding of genius can be. Yeah, totally. I mean, I
1: think that, that idea of tenacity- Successful what, genius, anyway. Yeah, successful genius. And I think the, ten, the idea of tenacity, what, what I was trying to sum up here was that the fact that many of these VCs also just don't want to back the next person who's gonna pull the escape cord the second it gets harder with the company. So they want to see, they want to back someone that can do this for seven to 10 years. Um, and that was one of the other things that I was trying to make a point about, is that the venture funds that exist, they're existing for a four to five-year investment cycle, and then another four or five-year hold period. So the idea that they're hoping for is that the company is successful within a decade. Um, so that idea of an overnight success story is just complete bullshit. And so that idea of tenacity is they want to back someone who has that.
0: Yeah, we have a, a member of studios who's only, I believe, either 12 or 13 years old, um, and has a startup. And um, this is just a me- she's here tonight, and just a message to just keep going, no matter what, um, and believe in yourself, really, which is, I think, one of the things that just comes through from all of these stories. I mean, the Airbnb one that you mentioned in the book is like, obviously, I think many of us have probably heard it in many points, which is they racked up $15,000 in credit card debt. They struggled and struggled and really pressed, but they just believed in the idea and kept going for it. Um, At what point... Though, do you think that tenacity can cross? Like, how do you, if you're a VC investing in something, how do you discern the difference between someone who has the right kind of tenacity and self belief and someone who is maybe just a little bit uh, solipsistic and possibly sociopathic? Or
1: I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it is a combination of like, um, you wanna see that someone else is believing in them too. And that, that comes from the storytelling piece of it. So you can have as much tenacity as you want and just keep running through every single wall, but then getting knocked down. And if nobody else on the other side, no customers, is saying, yeah, we love what you're trying to put out there and keep doing and keep going hard at it, you'll start to see it pretty quick. Um, So that overconfidence, I think, is the actual where they're just blind and not self-aware at all. Um, That's where we actually called it. So we did it for about two and a half years, and I think... Realize that, I mean, we got a good amount of customers, we got a good amount of traction, but it wasn't growing at the pace that we needed it to. It wasn't growing at the pace that our our investors needed it to. Um, And I think that's where your tenacity starts to turn into just craziness and, like you're saying, like a psychopath, um, just because you just have so much self-belief that maybe this will work. The reason why I'm saying the self-belief piece is just because this is extremely, it's irrational and it's extremely hard. Because when we went out there, We spoke to probably 100 or so VCs, and most of them said no. And they didn't just say no, they just ripped it apart. And they're like, everything like this has failed. Um, And I know, even despite all that, I will back another one of those because I really do think this needs to exist. Um, And I think it's an extremely exciting endeavor. So that self-belief needs to exist because you can't come home every single night crying at 6 p.m. because everybody said no. Uh, So that idea of self-conviction and self-belief, I think if you're going to start a company, you need a little bit of it.
0: So that's maybe the difference between uh, an entrepreneur and an investment banker. Yeah, 100%. Uh, um, So uh, in the genius section, one person you talk about who isn't a VC-backed startup founder but is an interesting guy, Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water. And you went to work for Charity Water. And it sounded like from what you describe in the book that you were inspired to go work for Charity Water. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: yeah so why you include Scott yeah for sure so for the for the people who don't know Charity Water is a nonprofit it's based in Tribeca started about 10 years ago the premise of the nonprofit is a hundred percent of public donations will go directly to the field Um, it's focused on providing clean and safe drinking water in developing countries so my role over there was pretty early on we were bouncing between Ethiopia and New York the reason why I brought Scott into the into the fold was because, because I think just the way this idea of emphasizing the storytelling aspect of it, I just think that nonprofits most people just frown down upon. Um, there's just so many causes that are going after their attention right now. Um, I think nonprofits, most people believe, are just like a black hole of funding. You put a dollar in, and you don't really know where it's going and how much of it is going to your destination. Uh, so Scott understood that he needed to tell a story, and he needed to actually be able to convince investors in order to back this. and. Some of the investors who backed a lot of these tech companies actually have poured money into that nonprofit because of his ability to tell a story. But not only tell a story that was embellishment or or telling a story that wasn't uh, wasn't honest. But I think he very honestly and transparently has stuck with his story and convinced people that this is a cause worth backing. Um, and I think the other reason why I brought that up was just because that idea of transparency, the things that he's done operationally and I talked about some of those operational things that he's done on his side um, a lot of founders don't have that level of transparency. So they'll just lie, and they'll tell you stats and statistics and things about their company or things about their customers that just aren't true. Um, and I think when that happens, it's actually uh, pretty sad, and you, people just won't back them, and it spreads pretty quickly. But that level of integrity that Scott has when he's going out for capital is something that I think a lot of, like, Reed Hoffman and a lot of other investors have backed up behind. So
0: because so, one thing I thought about, and you mentioned cherry water, um, just because they have been associated with startup scenes for so long, despite being a nonprofit, as opposed to most nonprofits. Um, And their rise is kind of parallels the rise of the B Corp, um, which Kickstarters really boasted a lot about. This is what we do. We're a mission-driven business. Um, Some people could argue that it's easier to maintain that tenacity and also to be able to stand in front of investors if you are saying up front, this is the thing that we're doing. Where and how do you see B Corp's uh, development being and do you see there being a, a bigger future with VC or do you think that the the limits that they're not focused
1: around ultimately generating sh- shareholder value being so, so to be honest I'm still learning more about this so I worked for B Corp and consulted with them for a year um, and I thought everything they were doing was really incredible they were taking in really a lot of grant and foundation money in order to continue growing and then they also had customers on the other end that were supporting their business model Um and they, they create a positive impact. I think where venture capitalists are concerned, they're purely profit-driven. Um, and they're purely return-driven. So I think a B Corp will, if, as long as the VC still sees that they can return their fund based off of that investment, then that's great. Um, and they won't care about the B Corp or C Corp. But I think that confusion, whether there is, are you in, do you exist to create an impact or do you exist to create a profit, you have to be very clear that you can do both at the same time with that investment. Um, so many people will end up just choosing only a nonprofit route or the C Corp route, or they'll have to switch later on to one or the other because one side of the business does well. I think what Charity Water does well is that it takes its donations and it takes its, the 100% piece and it handles the salaries from a completely different arm. So that a public donation from anyone here of $10, none of that's going to salaries. Um, and B Corp's can't do that um, because Scott's gone and raised capital from somewhere else for that piece of the business. But that's a very hard game to play, um, and it's something that we've covered uh, pretty substantially. So it's something that I can talk about further, also.
0: Yeah, and I mean, related to a certain extent, one of the points
1: you mentioned in the book
0: is how you know investors are looking when they're, VC investors specifically are looking for. Companies that are going to return an entire round for the fund, um, and so a company that has a max valuation of a hundred million dollars may not actually even do it, really. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is just like, an eighty million dollar company is a pretty big fucking company. Um, and so, wh- where where do, where do you go? I mean, especially as as opportunities for what used to be small businesses close off. And are now global but still essentially smaller or medium-sized businesses, where should they be looking to? Could you imagine a new f- kind of era of VC funding touching?
1: Yeah, them? I mean it's already it's already coming about. I mean, there's a couple of funds called like NDVC, there's a couple of pre-seed funds. They're not looking for the billion dollar exits. They're really, I mean, a lot of them are changing their strategy also and saying we're happy with a 5X or a 10X, and we'll do multiple of those as opposed to trying to chase for the moon. And if one of these go go to the moon, that's great. Um, but that's their new strategy, because I think the way the entire landscape has changed, if... So Union Square Ventures has stayed close to its roots, and it's like, we're only going to raise $200, 250000000 million funds, because it's too hard to find an investment that's going to return a $3 billion fund. But you're seeing so many of them raise these $5, 10000000000 billion funds, where they now need 20 companies that can hopefully return that fund. Um, so that's something that's changing in the market. But I... I I personally believe that you can create a very successful fund, and I can have really good investments, and I can hope that I can back a company that will exit for $80 million in the early stages and still see a really good return on capital um, and do really well by my investors. Um, So I think that that shift is already happening um, where people are realizing that you can't have it. But the idea of venture capital is those moonshots. It's the idea that hopefully one of these turns into that multi-billion dollar business. So... There are other vehicles of financing for those types of companies. Um, you have government grants. you got the SBIR. You've got um, kind of small business loans fund, and you got so many different types of people that would do those. But venture capital funds are actually starting to play in that game, too.
0: Yeah, and uh, related to this, too, I mean, so you've you've written a book that is theoretically providing instructional advice for people. Um, One of the most well-known instructional founder books is Lean Startup, which you reference in your book. And one point I thought that was interesting that you made is that the methodology of Lean Startup is actually contrary to the venture capital framework. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so Keith Raboy um, is in the book, and he is invested in he was invested in the earliest employee at linkedin at yelp at airbnb um so he's backed probably the most a lot of the successful tech companies from this generation and worked at them pretty early on um and he believes that the lean startup is a is a theory that is full of shit, basically in his in his words um so i use that as another disputing point is like how do other people in the book feel about that approach. And some believe that lean startup is the Bible, and that's what you have to go out with, and you have to test, and you have to talk to customers, and you have to build it based off of what your customers are saying. What Keith Ruboy was saying was that you, as a founder, and I think this is where he's really thinking of those, because he's backed them. He's backed Elon Musk again and again, and he's backed these people who have created game-changing and completely new category-defining businesses where others haven't. Um, so he's saying that your job isn't go- to go and ask customers what it is that you want them to create You have to just create it and will it into existence because they won't have any idea of what that looks like um, So that's a theory and a thought that everybody had different uh, ideas about um, I'm still very much of the belief that lean startup is the right way to be building a company um, I think it's too hard to actually have this conviction and this arrogance uh, that what you're building everybody needs <laughs> and without ever testing it, without ever talking to anybody.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and really being honest, I mean, the the people who are able to get funding for startups that aren't following that methodology are people who have already gotten funding for a previous startup. Exactly.
1: No, yeah. 100%. And that's exactly what I felt when I was sitting across from him, is that this 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 re- relates to people that are in the Bay Area that are extremely successful already, um, are moving within these circles. I mean, the only person that I think might be able to get these types of things are like So, for example, my failed media startup. If I was uh, someone leaving the New York Times or leaving one of the largest media companies and now saying I'm going to go and do this and this is what I'm going to well into existence, yeah, maybe that person has a chance because they have some pedigree or they have some history. Um, But I think nobody saying that this needs to exist without showing any sort of validation is going to have a really hard time raising capital. Um, And I think investors will just kind of laugh them out of the room. Uh,
0: so I've got a ton more questions for Canal, but do you guys have questions for him? Because we can open up to audience. So get your questions ready. I'm just going to ask a couple more, um, and we'll pick some out. So you've been an, an entrepreneur. What are some? And you, you failed, you said. So what are some learnings that you took away from that that you would share to someone that's coming to you to pitch their business now, or asking you for advice?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't take each of each. Uh, advice specifically related to venture capitalists, I wouldn't take each venture capitalist's advice too seriously. Um, I think a lot of them, their guess is as good as yours, um, where they're betting, they're trying to hope that you've de-risked it enough for them to also believe in it. But I wouldn't take each person's advice as, as the holy grail and say, this is why I'm going to stop building this business. Um, with update emails, I would keep them short and brief and infrequent um, how that,
0: how frequent is infrequent
1: i think i mean unless there's something really meaningful to say actually someone sent me an update email yesterday and i was really excited and I, I responded back to her because i think there's just so many emails that you get and then if you're not saying anything meaningful and you're getting one every single month that's just like hey we're looking for capital and the
0: sidebar of that um, is you like you do, you wouldn't normally re- even if it was interesting you might not respond as I'm, you being the vc yeah, yeah.
1: um I think the other thing too is like get the story down packed because there's just too many too many founders that I meet with and I'll sit in a pitch meeting for 25 30 minutes and maybe this is because I'm ignorant and dumb but it's just I just don't get what they're building at the end of it um, and that's but that's on the founder they're supposed to show me why this needs to exist and tell me why their customers care about it and why they're going to help kind of lead it into a place. Because if they can't convince me, then they're not going to convince really any people to join them. They're not going to convince any customers to pay them. So I think that's the storytelling, I think, is the most important. Piece. Well,
0: also conveying intelligence, tenacity, and self-belief. Mm, right. Yeah. Right. Um, it's pretty easy. So um, let's go to some questions. Uh, we got one right here. And let me just preface this first point. I implore you to not pitch a business idea right now in front of the audience if you are contemplating doing that. Um, I will literally cut you off, so go ahead, go for it.
1: What in your mind would disrupt venture capital itself? I I like that. I have actually two or three chapters about it. Um, I think it's extremely inefficient. Uh, And that was one of the things that I asked every VC to open, was like, do you believe venture capital is efficient? And the ones that were sitting in the bay that had a really good network were like, yeah, this works perfectly. The people that need funding are getting the funding. But all the statistics, completely say otherwise, right? So you know the statistics around people of color, you know the statistics of women, you know the- I mean, I think
0: you say 2.2% of VC funding goes to women,
1: which right. is fucked, by I, the way. I don't think it's changed by much, despite all the conversation, but it's it's like 0.8% go to um, Hispanics. It's like, it's very, very low. Um, so I think it's obviously not operating efficiently, um, whatever arguments people have for that. Um, the- there have been things that have started to try to disrupt venture capital, some which are just completely unbiased data models, where you plug in a bunch of data, and then if you do it right, then the capital should spit out. Um, there have been the entire ICOs and the entire thing with blockchain, and that's tried and kind of petered out. Um, there's the crowdfunding campaigns that Kickstarter things. But I think AngelList is probably the closest. Um, So you see like venture funds that are now, they're not just singular people and gatekeepers of a lot of capital, but you're now just seeing basically everybody in this room can form a syndicate and invest in the next future of companies. So there's a company that I actually just got an email from that was like, we're not going to raise venture capital, but they instead decided to go through Angel's List and they got, I think, a $5 million round from 3,000 investors. So that works from a capital perspective. But the idea of that trail-wise sidekick thing of like, do you need someone on your board who's seen this company and can help you through some of those tight spots you don't have? But then I think where this has started to change now, and you see with the way venture capitalists are hiring, is they're hiring people who led growth at Uber, or they led marketing and creative at Charity Water, or something like that, in order to, because they know that an investor is a dime a dozen. And now they're trying to bring in people who can actually sit on your board that actually add value. Um, So I think VC definitely will change pretty dramatically, um, and it already is. It's just going to require some corrections that I think see that through, too.
0: Cool. So next question, back in there. Yes, hello. Um, I was wondering why you chose the word genius, which pretty much references an individual,
1: uh, and not chose something that is closer to a team. Good point. Um, I think what I was talking about was more... Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, I think a lot of these these companies that I've featured in here were teams. Um, I chose the word genius just because I believed it was the closest thing to that point that I was trying to make earlier around: are you genetically disposed to something, or are you create it over time? Um, it also seemed catchy for sales. Um, but, but that's what I was. That's what I was trying to go. But
0: for. but honestly, I mean, we have again. I mentioned we have lots of VCs that come and speak here, and at the end of the day, a lot of the times when they talk about businesses that they invest in it's about investing in a person especially when you're doing early stage investments and even if there is a team there's usually a person on the team that is that senior speaker that is the visionary that is whoever right. and so it's a fair point i think because you as the vc you are looking for that person that you're going to connect with
1: yeah we, we definitely are looking for that person but i think it goes to yeah exactly like you're saying it's it's the first person who, dis- who had the idea and started it. And maybe if I'm talking this from the perspective of a seed or a pre-seed investor. But the all of the elements that I wrote about, about storytelling and the conviction and things like that, all that relate to can they hire the second and third person. Um, because that storytelling piece is one of the harder ones. And we talk about it in the book as magnets for talent. Um, so can they attract those people? Great. Uh- yeah, I think I can probably hear you from there.
0: Yeah, uh, Me, myself, um, I'm a strong believer that, that there are three kinds of talents that need to be part of that founding team. Um, one is the hipster, that is the guy that understands the idea, right? That has the thought. But I love to see a hacker and a, um, and a hustler as well to make sure that the technology is going to be there, you know, and that there's somebody actually going to drive sales. So I, I, I truly understand that the, that the hipster is the starting point and point. Uh, but I, I love to see those other two as well because that, for me, at least, it's a triangle that actually will make it work.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, so we're we're investing a lot of technical businesses too, and we've done some autonomous vehicle companies recently. And a visionary behind an autonomous vehicle company is is not enough. So we do do a lot of diligence on the engineering side and make sure that everybody's in place. But
0: uh, cool. Next question. Other questions. Right there. Wait for the mic, please. Thanks. Thanks. Hey. Um,
1: I think Hearst has an incubator is that right and I
0: sort of see that's a trend and, and Is it an incubator or a do they have an incubator and a, a venture fund or
1: So yeah so we actually I so for everybody else we actually have a couple of different things so we own Fitch Ratings so we have a fintech investment arm we I sit on the ventures team which is kind of seed through growth equity. um, And we're not strategically focused the organization. We're just making investments purely for financial purposes. And the incubator that you're talking about, which is kind of more commonly known, is called Hearst Lab. And that's only investing in female founders. uh, And they're bringing them into Hearst and giving them kind of access to the legal team, giving them free rent, giving them uh, a host of other services. Um, But those are also not strategic to Hearst. They're just businesses that are interesting. Um, So, And I cut you up before you actually asked your question. But I th- what you were asking was is the trend that's been playing out. Yeah, I see that I'm wondering if you've had any, if you've gotten a, a judgment about the trend towards incubators, like you just mentioned in Hearst, it's not necessarily strategic to the rest of the business or the other venture arm, right And I'm wondering if that trend is simply like a marketing sort of uh, effort. and does it really add value? and are VCs really getting value from that, in other words, prime access to you know uh, the best startups, et cetera. Right, so I think the, um, obviously I'm gonna be a little bit biased because I work with Hearst, but I do think, so two different elements to this question. One that you didn't even ask, but the idea of corporate VC versus regular VC. I'm believing that corporate VC is actually starting to become more valuable because capital is just a dime a dozen now. and There's just so much out there. So the hope is, is that the corporate brings some strategic value to you because we have hundred years of magazine and consumer businesses, and we have Fitch ratings, and we have this healthcare arm that hopefully one day, if you ever need to tap into, I can make that connection for you. We also don't have an exit cycle, so we don't need to exit your investment within five years. It's all balance sheet capital, so we can just stay in it for 15 years if we need it to. Um, so that's not gonna be forcing an exit in order to raise a new fund. So that's the idea of corporate versus regular, where I believe that we can add value. As long as we're not shoving weird terms onto the term sheets where I think corporate's got a bad name, it's a, it's a good play. Um, for the incubator piece that you were asking about, I do think it adds value in a similar way where if you get them, if you get the incubator, oftentimes you get them as a customer. Um, Hearst Lab not specifically, because if the business isn't directly related, but the idea is that if a media comes, a company comes into Hearst Lab, Hearst Lab now has about 50 different scouts from different businesses in Hearst who come in and weigh in on that business, and they come and kind of become your board of directors, your mentors for to help that company. Um, so in that are, in that sense, it's been helpful of building them out. I think one of the to answer this from a way that won't be biased, I think Workbench does it the best. Um, so Workbench is focused on bringing in kind of enterprise SaaS businesses and connecting them with larger enterprises for sales like Amex and Google and Pepsi and all that. But they bring in the corporate to say, what are the biggest problems you're facing? They go and match it up with companies and then get them to work together. Um, so that's where I think these incubators are actually working, because you're not building in a black box anymore. Now the incubator is responsible for bringing in the other people on the other side and getting in customers. So I think VCs like it, because it's also filtering out companies that were going to fail and kind of putting you in a pressure cooker for eight weeks to see if you can actually last and make some progress. Um, so for me, it's always a good filtering mechanism. Uh, but the saddest part too is like there's a lot that just don't make it because I see some of the Y Combinator companies right now and it's amazing, but they also they are also looking for one type of company that I don't think Hearst will ever invest in right now. Um, so there's a lot that just filter right out of it. But it's a good way of meeting companies and seeing them early on too. Uh, to,
0: yeah.
1: It's a huge yeah huge way to market LPs yeah uh, and especially like the ones that you've invested into.
0: Um, one of the things your comments just touched on, though, is something else you mentioned in the book, which is the fact that some VCs have investment theses that they try to work with. BetaWorks is one. Um, and you have a quote from Matt Hartman, who's one of the partners in our fund, where he says, we raise money for those companies we're building so we get a sense of the funding market for those companies. Um, so, for example, like at the end of our accelerator program, we, which is all focused on one specific area, we end up knowing how much, as much as anybody about that ecosystem in that space. We can share the information with those companies with those companies, and we can uh, learn to make better investments for ourselves. And there is a value there. Do you see that as being a trend or just a side piece of VC in terms of?
1: I mean, I hope it's more of a trend because I think like Betaworks, and this isn't just because we're sitting here, but VoiceCamp, for example, I had done a deep dive into voice interface to see if this was something that was going to work. And the way I did that was just come into VoiceCamp and see like 10 companies that Betaworks had already chosen to say, okay, these are the ones that are interesting. These are the ones that I want to meet with. This is what's interesting to Hearst. And they did it with... Audio. They yep. did it with uh, yeah. I mean, two, experiences. two of the voice
0: com- or the audio companies, um, Gimlet and Breaker, were both bought by Spotify. Right, right. And and you know that's th- from us. That's a valuable perspective. Obviously, we've got our own interests, but um, it seems to be a rising trend, and it and it dovetails with the rise in corporate VC. It right. feels
1: right. Yeah, uh, and it's a great feeder. And I mean, so at NYU's Endowment, we had our own incubator and kind of accelerator program too. And in the beginning, we were doing just broad uh, companies that seemed interesting. Then I think we started coming up with themes and saying, OK, these are the ones. Because they'll, they'll cross-pond it. They'll benefit from one another. They'll be able to share contacts. They'll understand exactly what they're looking for. Um, and then it helps the, the moderators and the organizers of the incubator to figure out exactly who your customers are and actually work for you. Um, and you build an expertise. So now if I'm ever looking at a voice company, I know I can turn to Ben or Matt and basically say, like, is this real? Is what they're building, what are the challenges that they're going to face? Um, so that helps is that you build an expertise fairly quickly. Uh,
0: uh, any more questions in the audience? Uh, one right
1: there. Uh, not a question,
0: but a comment. So Just wait for the mic for a second so everyone can hear you. Yeah, thank
1: you. Your <coughs> comments on uh, lean startup versus uh, build it, they will come. I think history part of, you know, pretty much shows that uh, lean startups, uh, dot com bust, in 2001, right, a ton of engineers building companies. There was no market for. Right. Would you agree on that? No. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm I'm a huge proponent of lean startup that I think you have to actually go and find out if customers want it. Keep taking their input in. That's exactly what we we're teaching at NYU. So all the PhDs and faculties that were building in a bubble and hoping that someone will use this after nine months of work, I think is a, right. a fool's errand. Um, so I, yeah, I completely agree. So. We're pretty much about out of time. I've got last couple of things I want
0: to ask. So first of all, you've written a book, because you ha- think that you've got some insights that are worth other people uh, experiencing. What, for you, is what's one inspirational book that you've read that like feels like was really transformational for you or powerful in your own career? Um.
1: There's been a lot, but I think Shoe Dog was actually one of the more interesting ones. Shoe Dog, I'm actually not familiar with that one. Um, sorry, that's written by Nike's founder. Oh, uh, Phil Knight. Yes. Ah, yes, oh, yes. Okay, right. Um, and I thought it was just interesting because it's a completely different time. It talks about. It goes very deep into actual problems that he faced. Yeah. It's an iconic company, but I think he writes it in a way where you actually don't know how this is going to turn out the entire time. And he also writes it in a way where like it goes back to basics that you're not raising venture capital. You're not trying to. Create a billion-dollar company right away. I don't think he ever writes in the book that he seemed like this was going to be a massive company. It just seemed like he was trying to survive at every second, and he wasn't just depending on venture capitalists. Like
0: he was depending on child slave labor.
1: <laughs> uh, right.
0: But right. but he's an inspirational right. dude, though, for sure. In in some ways, and from a business uh, perspective, but from
1: yes. a book, from a uh, book uh, perspective, yeah, yes. I think it's a, an interesting one. I mean, I think we can go into a lot of different founders, also, and uh, but the book itself is a good one.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. And then. So just to help you, because I'd love for you to actually get emails from founders that are interesting. But do you want to talk just a little bit about what uh, Hearst Ventures does so that you don't get emails from people that have businesses outside of your wheelhouse?
1: Sure. We're investing anywhere from seed to series C. Kind um, of check sizes are anywhere from 500000 to five million first. million um, we're doing mostly B2B businesses, um, so not as much consumer anymore. Specifically, my focus last year was transportation mobility. We've broadened it to be enterprise SaaS and healthcare and mobility as well. Um, so I would love to meet. I mean, even if it's not a fit for Hearst, I'm happy to just chat and, and discuss further too, uh, and, and see where uh, where it goes. But happy to talk.
0: Cool. Well, Canal, thank you so much for coming tonight. Let's give a round of applause.